what I learned about pain, it's a massive ball of energy. And that energy can be used for good. And really what it's all about, if a customer or a person has pain, they're really trying to get out of that pain as, as quickly as possible. So they're extremely motivated. And they were motivated to take a journey with us to get to the other side and to try some completely new things, to basically put a new playbook in place about how we work together. So now I don't really shy away from negative events within customer relationships. I actually see them as a great opportunity. If you do the right thing and if you get in the foxhole with the customer, the relationship could actually be better when it concludes than before the whole crisis began. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jamal Reimer. Jamal is the author of a book titled Mega Deal Secrets, How to Find and Close the Biggest Deals of Your Career. And he is also the Vice President of Commercial at Sama. In our conversation today, we're talking about selling mega deals, deals that can transform the arc of your career. First of all, we dive into what constitutes a mega deal and how mega deals change the game for everyone involved, the individual seller, the seller's company, the buyer, and the customers of your buyers. And then we dig into why Jamal believes that most sellers are stuck in the land of what he calls run rate selling. I love his description of this. And this is the land where it's believed that if you just increase your activity, sales will follow. Or that you need to work 15 opportunities at the same time to hit your numbers. Or that if you just paint by the numbers and stay within the lines, then you will have success in B2B sales. Said Jamal talks about why that's not the case, and you all know how I feel about that. So Jamal and I get into all of this and much, much more, but before we get to Jamal, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jamal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. So let's see. I'm not sure we've had anybody on the show. We've had people who are based in Sweden on the show before, but I don't think we had anybody from, pronounce the name of the town again? Lund. Lund. And here we are, 10th of January. So how much sunshine do you get each day? A, a thimble full. I think we get <laughs> sun every other week. Every other week. <laughs> we got but some today. It was a good day. Sunrise is at what time at this time of year? Uh, 8.30. 8.30, okay. Yeah, yeah, I spent a lot, travel to Sweden a lot for business. And I remember going once in December right before Christmas holidays. And it was like, yeah, it seemed like from like 9 to 3, we were sort of, if the sun was out. And that was when you saw the light. Um, right. I just remember everybody telling me that, that lived there, the customer I was dealing with that, was it February is the big vacation month? Where it basically reaches their limit in February and then that's you gotta get out. It gets sun. <laughs> you gotta you gotta escape. And and Swedes tend to go quite far. The 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 location of preference is typically Thailand. Oh really? I was thinking like Spain or something. Well there there is that too, but there's not enough uh there's not enough sun and heat in winter in Spain. Oh. So it's either Thailand or it's the Canary Islands. Wow. Okay. And where are you going? Uh, we just went to Turkey in November. Okay. 
Um, so we're thinking about Canary Islands. Canary Islands. Okay. Very cool. So how'd you end up in Sweden? Uh, it was, it was for love. Oh, there we go. Good motivation. I met met my Sweden based wife when she traveled to the U S to visit family. Oh, really? (laughs) Dated intergalactically, so to speak. And then, right. Uh, because she's a European trained doctor, she discovered how much rework she'd have to do to move to the States and practice. So I moved here for her. Ah, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. I, I got married 11 years ago and moved from San Diego to New York because my wife actually teaches medical school in New York. (laughs) So yeah, she was, she was based there and didn't have the flexibility. Things you do for love, right? Things you do for love. Things you do for love. I think there's a song about that. So tell us a little bit about the work that that you do and the company you work for. Sure, I'm a, I'm I'm a sales VP at a company called Sama Sama Technologies, and we basically bring uh, AI and ML, or broadly speaking, intelligence into the clinical environment of large pharmaceutical companies. So the clinical testing that they do. Yeah, when you when you find a promising drug before you get permission from the FDA or or other related agencies around the world, you got to test that drug on human beings. And that process is a is, is a very complex process. And there's all kind of software that helps bring efficiencies, you know, and, and reduce manual work within those processes and that's what we do. Our stuff sits on top of other software to actually do the work with digital workers instead of real people. Yeah, I'd say a friend who was in the uh, biotech business, uh, worked with small pharma companies doing drug, drug discovery and so on. I think he estimated the cost of getting through all the way through stage three clinical trials these days is, I want to say, three $400 million. That's right. And that is our, you know, that uh, red circle with the red line through it mm. around the word software that's, that Salesforce uses, right? Yeah. No software. Yeah. That's, that's basically our, our own symbol. No 300 million per trial. We're trying to reduce that cost because it's gotten way out of hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. It makes it think like, where's the innovation come from? If Here we are veering off topic a little bit, but where innovation comes from, from small companies, if they come up with a discovery is basically have no choice, but either to what license it to a big company or sell themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or if they try to do it themselves, there's so much work to be done that small biofarms don't have those people. So they contract with these outsourcers. They're called CROs, clinical research organizations. Right. And that's where all the money goes. And that's why it's so expensive because yeah. they're using people. Yeah. Yeah. So again, if you're a small company, let's say you've gone through a couple rounds, but now you got to the point where, yeah, you're going to go into cl- clinical trials. You're looking at having to raise over a quarter billion dollars just to go through that. Pretty much. Yeah. And that's just for one drug. That's just for one drug, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let's talk about sales. So you've written a book titled Mega Deal Secrets, How to Find and Close the Biggest Deal of Your Career. So first question is, uh, what's the deal with Sweden and mega deals? Because the other book I know called Mega Deals was written. Do you know Christopher Engman? 
I, I, I know the organization. Yeah. <laughs> so it's both, both located in Sweden. I was like, okay, huh, interesting. Um, yeah. So what was the impetus to write your book? Um, the impetus for writing my book was uh, a series of experiences that I had. Um, I was a, I was a pretty average seller for a long time. The first decade of my career, I've been in enterprise sales for 21 years now. Mm-hmm. And in that first decade, I, uh, I had some success. I had some failure. I was fired twice in a row mm-hmm. for underperformance. What type of, what type of company what type of products? Uh, one was a knowledge base, uh, a knowledge base product that was ultimately bought by uh, Salesforce, mm-hmm. and it was a knowledge base for call centers. And another one was a was a security, basically an anti phishing product. Yeah, we've all been we've all been I think we've all been fired. Um, <laughs> what, what was the was it you? Was it the product, the company, a mix? What What do you think? Well, I'm the seller. I'll never say it was me. Mm-hmm. Must be something else, right? The product, right. the organization, something. Right. I mean, uh, I, I'm a guy who takes responsibility. I, I did not have what it took at the time to sell those products to that audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so what changed? Well, what changed? Uh, the first thing that happened is after I lost the, these jobs twice in a row, uh, I went to a recruiter you know, and he was reading my resume and, and I, it was clear that I had bounced around a lot. And he said, mm. I said, what do you mean? Mm? He says, well, it's not like you worked at Oracle for 10 years. And sure enough, the next job that I got was at Oracle. <laughs> intentionally or? No. Okay. <laughs> not intentionally. It's just, I thought maybe the time. Let's go to work at Oracle. The, yeah. the 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 first place that I could get a job because I had I had uh, bills to pay. Long long story short, after a, a few years at Oracle, um, I basically um, was put on an account that needed to do a renewal of a recurring contract, and the experience that we went through was uh, amazing. I was mentored by my VP of sales and my VP of services. Mm -hmm. Both of them were 20 year, you know, foul mouthed, very salty veterans of our space, uh, which Mm -hmm. is pharma tech. And, um, together, mostly them, but I had, you know, I did a little bit more than carry their golf clubs. Um, by the by the time we were done with that deal within a 9 month period we had taken what was a, a an at risk 10 million dollar run rate contract mm-hmm. and blew it up into a 50 million dollar contract right and we had done it through kind of throwing out the rule book and doing lots of things that uh the organization in general and especially the senior executives really really liked we changed the commercial model. We changed the operational model. We got lots of exceptions for, you know, the big Oracle rule book. Mm-hmm. And we basically crafted a deal that the customer just couldn't refuse, and you know, blowing it up kind of 5X. So take us through that. So unhappy customer, seemingly unhappy customer, you said they're at risk, uh, turned it around, but 5x on the, the revenue of your value you could extract from the customer. 
what was the key to doing that? Um, in, in the in the book, in the beginning of the book, I kind of lay out this this one scene that really just set up everything. And uh, I was we were sitting at the in a conference room on the on the customer's premises, and we were kind of going through what we thought the customer was all about. Cause that's typically what had happened in previous years. We were talking about how we could give them a discount here and a different team over there and move the off onshore guys, move it to an offshore team to save money and stuff. And the, the, the VP in the business who was sitting across the table from us, he just put his hands up and he says, guys, 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 this is not about getting a discount or moving a team around or any of that. This is about how we steward the most important data, the critical IP of our company. And then there was a long pause and we all just kind of thought about that. And then that just completely changed the conversation. Mm -hmm. And one, it elevated the importance of what we were doing in our eyes, you know, the, 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 the perception of our engagement. And it also opened the door to being much more creative in how to solve it. Yeah. I mean, you're basically saying arguably, that with the initial sale that whoever had been responsible for it hadn't identified what was most important to this customer. There, there clearly is that opportunity. There were some other factors at play. Um, The product that they were using was part of an acquisition that we had made the previous 12 months. Mm -hmm. And, as is so typical with acquisitions, lots of people from the acquired company tend to leave. Yep. There was a big turnover in the team. And but between those changes and some, and some problems with the software and some problems with uh, how we contract, um, it created a crisis. And it was during this crisis that we had to renegotiate the entire three-year contract. I think like a never, what's the expression? Never waste a good crisis. Never waste a good crisis. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But there's something to that, Andy. Um, What I learned is, you know, we talk about pain in sales all the time. Talk about, you know, find the pain. It's all about the pain. Um, Yeah, I I don't, but go ahead. (laughs) What, what I learned about pain is um, it's, it's, it's a massive ball of energy. Mm-hmm. And that energy can be used for good. And really what it's all about, um, if a customer or a person has pain, they're really trying to to get out of that pain as, as quickly as possible. So they're extremely motivated. And they were motivated to take a journey with us to get to the other side and to try some completely new things, to, to, to basically put a new playbook in place mm-hmm. about how we work together. So now I don't, uh, I don't really shy away from n- negative events within customer relationships. I actually see them as a gr- as a great opportunity if you do the right thing and if you if you get in the foxhole with the customer, the relationship could actually be better when it concludes than before the whole crisis began. Yeah, as long as <laughs> as long as the the crisis isn't. Uh... Yeah, intentionally created in order to create an outcome. I mean, I, oh, yeah, yeah. early in my career, yeah, working for a company at the time called Burroughs, now Unisys, you know, their CEO and chairman was famous for saying that 
as as a rule, what you try to do is keep your customers surly but not rebellious. And that was that was the culture, right? If we just sort of keep everybody a little pissed off, it creates this opportunity to upsell them. And I know that's not what you're referring to, but it's you know I don't want people to think that's what you're trying to do is to make people deliberately unhappy uh, in order to come in and run to the rescue. It's it's yeah, you're in a situation where you had a you know exodus of of talent and people and and so on, and you're stuck in this bad situation. Doesn't mean you run away from it. It means you can you can fix it, but yeah, just not make it part of your culture. Absolutely, I, I haven't heard that one yet. So. Oh yeah, yeah. The net result was is wasn't good. Uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, customers were taking full page ads out on the Wall Street Journal trying to create class action suits against the company I worked for. Uh, not because of my accounts, but you know, nationwide, because they they leaned into this mentality of saying, "Yeah, let's just keep everybody a little bit unhappy." Anyway, back on target. So what's what's so what is a mega deal? So how'd you come around this this idea of what the mega deal is? Um, well, the term mega deal was used widely within Oracle for years. I mean, I started at Oracle back in 2007. And at the time, a mega deal, they kind of call it, uh, it was a deal that was above the fold. It was like $10 million or above. Mm-hmm. And um, it needed special approvals to get paid out. And, you know, it needed a, a, a second or third or fourth or fifth set of eyes on it to get different kinds of approvals. Mm-hmm. to to get uh, discounts and other you know exceptional T's and C's etc. So I just kind of grew up in the Oracle culture with this concept of mega deals. And it, at Oracle it did have this definition of 10 million dollars or above. Right. But um that's not how I see it today. How I see it today as a mega deal is basically a deal of uncommonly large size given whatever context you're selling in. Mhm. I mean, I, I, I work with some really ambitious sellers, and for them, they're trying to go from selling 100K deals to a million-dollar deals. That, right. A million-dollar deal is a mega deal to a seller doing 100K. Yeah. I mean, I, I, reading your book, it's like, okay, I mean, this is – and I share this. Is, this is, it's a mindset. Yeah, it's not about the absolute size of the deal. It's, it's Everything's relative, as you talked about just now. Um, but it is a step up. For what you're doing currently. And the first time you do one, it is a journey into the unknown. Mm. Absolutely. And uh, it can be scary. It can, yeah. it can be anxiety provoking. Yeah. It can be very exposing, you know, because you're, you're, you're trying, you're attempting to do something you've never done. You've been a, you've been a fisherman with a fishing pole standing on the pier, going for fish a foot long for years and all of a sudden, you find yourself in a kayak surrounded with some other tribe members going after a whale. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a completely new experience the first time. And the fear can oftentimes be amplified because you've got a lot riding on it because you've spent so much time on it. At least in my experience with working with teams and my own experiences that it's, it gets pretty binary whether you're going to hit your number or not based on that deal coming in. And then the pressure can can be added even further with lots of eyes on it, very, yeah. very senior eyes. Yeah, because it's important to the company as well. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of proctology going on. There's a lot of second guessing. There's calls on the weekend. There's extra stuff you got to do to report. <laughs> and just 
inform people on what's going on? I'm laughing because, yeah, I had lots of those Sunday calls from from bosses over the years. Yeah. Um, so you sort of say mega deals change the game, produce value on four levels. So what are those those four levels? I mean, there's there's uh, clearly there's the customer. And that's front and center. That's got to be first. Mm-hmm. Whatever we can do for the customer. Then there's value for the seller. Because this can be a life-changing event, you know, just not just financially and, and commissions, but it can change your mindset permanently if you Absolutely. lean into it and stick with it. Yep. Confidence. Yes. Confidence, visibility. It's it's like climbing a big mountain and actually seeing to the other side for the first time. You know, you lived in this valley forever, and then you finally find a way to climb that mountain, and then you can see the vista on the other side for the first time and mm-hmm. see, oh my gosh, there's there's more world over there. Right. Um, th- then there's, uh, the possibility of changing the game for the company you work for. When you get a mega deal or a few mega deals in the door, you're kind of launching or, or relaunching in some cases, these big corporate relationships, you know, the, 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 through a mega deal, you can establish, you know, some, some, uh, companies call them key accounts, mm-hmm. lighthouse accounts or what right. have you. Anchor accounts. Yeah. And then it, you can establish all this um, great relationship building stuff, you know, governance cadences at various levels, special programs where you get their input on the next version mm-hmm. of your software or a new offering, et cetera. And then the last level is maybe the most important level because we're talking about enterprise sales here, right? This is some this big, big B2B sales. Mm-hmm. Not only can it help the company that you're selling to your customer, but it can wind up helping thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of their customers, you know, right. Everyday people. And that's, uh, I, I was really fortunate. I'm, I'm still fortunate to be in a space where that kind of association is pretty clear. So after we did this first really big deal, it was, with, it was with a pharmaceutical company helping in their, their clinical space, mm-hmm. their clinical uh, process. And uh, about within the next year, I saw the impact of the deal that we did. It helped this company speed the development and the approval process for life-saving drugs that went to tens of millions of people globally. Mm-hmm. And seeing that kind of direct link from something that I played a part in, because it's certainly not me that got this deal done. It was a huge team. Right. It it felt pretty good. Yeah. Well, they do. And as, but as you said, though, as you, even though you're part of the team, is it can become transformational for the individual who's sort of leading the charge on it. Yeah. Um, and it, sometimes it can and sometimes it can't. And what I mean by that is, it can it can instantly change it, it it did instantly change my my self perception and uh the way i look at sales i'm like holy cow i never knew that something like this was really possible mm-hmm. um but there's lots of sellers out there that you know they're one one time wonders you know one song wonders so to speak they and either they got lucky or they didn't learn it well enough to repeat it or whatever but they have this fantastic event that happens one time in their career and they're never able to reproduce it. Right. And that's what I mean by, you know, sometimes it can be a, for, for me, a transformation is a, is a lasting or a, like a permanent change for right. the better. 
Um, and if you can't catch on to that, then it's not so much a transformation. I, I don't know what you'd call it, a, you know, just an, a, an event. Yeah. Well, I thought interesting in your book, you, you say that, that by bringing this focus to your selling, that sellers can overcome sort of these negative stereotypes that have, you know, sellers have long been associated with is, and, you know, I started thinking about that. It's, it's, as we sort of touched on before is it's, cause not everybody's going to sell uh, big deals, right. Or mega deals. Um, but it is mindset that sellers should have, regardless of the size of the, the deal they're currently working on. Completely. And, and the mindset, um, is, is relevant at the beginning, before the beginning, all, all the way through. Um, I, this concept, I, I, I think of it as selling above the clouds. The way that I think about it is the first decade of my career, if I look back on it now that I've learned how to do this other thing, this mega deal, transformational selling process, I look back at that first 10 years and I said, that was uh, a very different mentality. I, I, now I call that run rate sales. Lots of smiling and dialing, you know, lots of pounding the phones, lots of cold email and a, kind of this three-step process, you know, prospect like crazy to try to get a discovery call that would lead to a demo. And at the end of the demo, all I could really do was pray that they would take my next call. And this was a cycle that I went through a year in it. No wonder I, no wonder I got fired twice in a row because that's kind of the way that I saw selling. Well, but that's, that's sort of the mindset that most sellers are socialized to have. I mean, you, you spell it out in the book, you know, you talk about, you know, run right sellers work is done reactively rather than purposely uh, predicated on the belief that if you just increase your activity, sales will follow uh, that you need to have too many opportunities in the mill at the same time. Um, like the one you say, if you just paint by the numbers and stay within the lines, you have success, which, you know, to me sort of typifies the way so much of selling is, is, uh, managed these days. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the biggest things that I learned in, in the first deal that I did, I told you I was mentored by these two mm-hmm. industry veterans. Uh, one of them in the book is, is a, uh, you know, they're all anonymized they, by the, all, all the characters in the book. They're all real people. They're just anonymized. Right. Composites. Composites. Yes, exactly. And my, my V, my VP of sales, I think, I think he's uh, probably a genius, you know, uh, uh, comes from a Eastern European background, intellectual parents. And uh, he would be on his motorcycle that's that's usually when I would give him updates. He'd be mm-hmm. on his motorcycle between his place in Paris and Nice, and he'd actually have like a microphone and a, you know a head uh, sure. earbuds for his phone, and we'd be talking about the deal in one of these many spreadsheets, and he'd actually be able to call out exact numbers in specific cells. <laughs> he, he was that that kind of smart. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like you need to work for somebody that smart at some point in your career. I. I had a similar experience with uh, at a certain point in my career after I'd been in about eight years working for somebody that was just so much smarter than anybody else I'd worked with or for before that was so challenging, right? Because I imagine this, this gentleman you're talking about 
same thing. Just was so smart. It was, you felt like you were running to catch up to them. Um, yeah. And it taught me so much because, like, yeah, I never want to be in that position where I'm trying to catch up with my 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 manager's understanding of the account. Yeah. No, there was that. Um, what he taught me was the value of uh, of uh, I don't know I don't know if playing is the right word is executing a sales strategy the same way you, you play chess at least a couple of moves ahead. Mm-hmm. You, think, you, you can't think 10 moves ahead. There's too many vari- variations. Right. But you got to think at least two, if not three, maybe four steps ahead. What is going to happen logically? If you do this, what are they logically going to do? And then what would you do? And then what would, they, you know, a couple of iterations with that. And he taught me how to sell with my brain instead of just through kind of rote activity. Or through emotion, Right. I mean, that's, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that this thing, what Sean about is thinking ahead is, is I agree. Cause I, that's why I felt like I was always sort of running to catch up with this manager in particular is you're talking about a level of intentionality in right. how you sell as opposed to, yeah, just following the paint by numbers or, um, yeah, just being robotic about it is to me, that's a huge differentiator from people I know that personally, have had consistent success over the course of their careers is yeah. Just using the heads thinking, being intentional about what they're doing, thinking ahead. I mean, it's I've in my first book, I, I called it, I said, you know, selling is a thinking person's business. Um, in the thinking process, something that I've had to learn how to do was not only think for myself, but, endeavor to think like people I needed to interact with Mm -hmm. and the high and to, to be, to start to reach the higher levels. I mean, I, 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 one thing that I fully learned is that you'll, you'll, you'll never do a really large deal without senior buy-in and probably a champion. I've never sold a big deal unless I had a really senior champion because they're just too complex Mm -hmm. and they're just too much work and they're too much of a pain in the rear for anybody except somebody who's got a lot of volition and a lot of motivation to get something done on the customer side. Right. Yeah. I think the, the sort of flip side of that is the danger that I see and oftentimes sales training is they, for deals that don't deserve or require that sort of senior level attention is to force sellers to try to get it. Hmm. Um, the, if you're taking the time and attention of a senior person on something that's, that's, doesn't require it. I've seen that end badly more often than not. And just the entry point for that seems to be, you know, um, various flavors of, you know, can, can, will you have a coffee with me? You know, what are your MBOs? The, 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 the concept that discovery is working from a completely blank slate. Right. Which in my view just doesn't work with senior folks. That's the last thing they want to do is tell you their problems. They want you to tell them, not only do you know their problems, but you already have some really good points of view on how to fix them in some way that they haven't heard before. Because they've already got Accenture and PwC and McKinsey and everybody else telling them the top four trends in the industry and then the next four that are going to come after that and the roadmap of projects that they should do to reach a certain amount of efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So 
in my experience, you you've either got to get ahead of that or you've got to you've got to tweak some level of uh, uh, of curiosity, of intrigue. Mm-hmm. You could be telling something of the same story that these other guys are talking about, but there's got to be something new or something that's very much a needle in the haystack where you're telling them something that they don't know about their own organization, not just about the industry, not just about trends and all this stuff. But if you can come and say, hey, I found this needle in the haystack on your shop floor. And what it means is this and what it implies is that. Mm-hmm. And it's much more meaningful than you've realized so far. And not only have I found it, but I think I know how to fix it or find the other ones or, you know, whatever the, whatever the problem is. Now you got, I'm like, holy cow. Now I'm hearing something new. Now I'm hearing something different and uh, it could be really relevant. So let's let this guy talk a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's multiple ways to have that conversation, but absolutely right. You got to bring something different to the table. Um, And the otherwise two points you make in the book, when you talk about your traits of mega dealer sellers is, is you're just, you're that run rate seller. If you don't have that, you're just hoping to get in, do the land and expand as opposed to truly sell something transformative. Um, the land and expand, I think can be a useful tool. But similarly, I think that it has become the biggest crutch in our industry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and it is a way to stay media it, it, with, with such a ubiquitous use of it. It is a, a surefire way. If that's, if that's your go-to strategy, it's a surefire way into eternal mediocrity. Right. And, yeah, and staying in the purgatory of run rate sales. Yeah. It is a guarantee of mediocrity. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I remember a conversation with CEOs, you know, stressing about his inability to develop a, you know, big deal strategy. And some of it is just as simple as, well, go out and sell big deals. <laughs> don't don't have your team completely oriented towards, yeah, let's get the smallest deal possible, and then let's see if we can grow it from there. Another thing that I've noticed about doing big deals is that they become relevant at a certain point in a in a company's maturation. So since I've started talking about mega deals, and especially since the book, uh, I get lots of reps from really young companies. Most of them are from at least kind of middle stage startups or, mm-hmm. or scale ups. Some of them are from really early startups and um, I'm starting to see that it's really hard to execute mega deals. If you're, you're, you're just too small or too young of a company, you can start to grow your average deal size, but to um, especially if you're going to do it more than once, if you want to, if you kind of want to grow a capability, of managing, closing, and servicing and delivering really large deals, you, you need a bunch of pieces. And I don't, I don't really address that as a topic within the book, but the, a lot of the characters are in these different areas. You know, there's, there's the sales team, which is not just what typical sellers do, which is you got a salesperson and you have a pre-sales person mm-hmm. and you kind of ride off into the desert like Batman and Robin you know, that'll get you a 100K deal, maybe a 500K deal. But if you really want to blow it out, if you really want to solve some big, big problems, 
you're not Batman and Robin. You're you need to be more like a Roman legion. You know, you need to be like the the field marshal of 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 this Roman legion with lots of players, lots of work streams going on at the same time. You need a battle plan and a way to manage it all. So how you manage things is completely different. It is. But the same token is, I would say, because yeah, my expertise coming up was, yeah, working for no name, no track record companies and selling really big deals against mm. big competition. And I'm a firm believer that if you think your ultimate goal is to sell big deals, then start off by selling big deals. Scale-wise, they may be a little smaller than you ultimately grow into. Yeah. But there's lots of ways to do it. Perhaps you know, we've had multiple deals where the buyer forced us to bring on a, a prime contractor. I mean, we were the entire system, but they're willing to pay an extra 20% to bring in a large integrator to act as sort of the buffer because the revenue was bigger than our annual revenues at that point that we're getting from that one deal. Wow. But you can do that. I wouldn't discourage people from saying there's a certain stage in our development where we can do big deals. The size of the deal will change. Yeah. But you can be a small company and go out and get a mega deal. Absolutely. A- absolutely. And if you make that a habit, that's the hockey stick in revenue that everybody's trying to get to. Right. Y- yes, you need the small deals. You need the medium deals. That's kind of there, – there's a place for a run rate, right? You, you, you need to be closing sure. stuff as a company all the time. Yep. But, man, if you can look at all of the deals worked by the company as like an investment portfolio – you know, you got so much in the in, in in bonds and so much in growth stock, and then maybe a, a few percent in the you know alternative asset classes. You can make a conscious decision as a company to say, okay, we want at least twenty percent of of our reps' time for going for the really big ones. Yeah, well, the fact is, again, my experience, personal experience with the companies that we've grown, is that you get the big deals. It teaches you how to do better at run rate selling. You learn how to support customers better. You learn how to execute. I mean, we <laughs> one big deal I had is the we were so again relatively small. There's a huge multi-billion-dollar uh, multinational. They insisted they put somebody on site <laughs> as we started to execute the contract. Uh, yeah, fine. We were fine with that. I mean, but that person helped us get better at what we were doing. Made us understand what we could do better. As we grew, um, yeah, I think it's it's too many companies are sort of put off by this idea that you know a certain size, certain stage for for doing big deals. It's like if you want to, if you're aspiring to do big deals, learn how to do big deals. That's a core capability of the company. Which, in in the way that I think, that very quickly moves to the relationship between the on the ground seller and the management team. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, to, not only to be nimble, but to to be agile, to be able to uh, deploy resources and say, "Yeah, we're going to put our first person on the ground for this for this customer." Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to build a new capability. You need the top management team to be able to make those decisions. You know, in in those cases, doing these big deals isn't that far from the, the same decisions you'd make in M and A. Oh yeah, no, it's a. You know? <laughs> Everybody's involved. It's not just the salesperson. Absolutely. Yeah. Huge visibility. And to your point, yeah. I mean, yeah. We, I remember one company, we made the decision. I made the decision. We we're going to put somebody in <laughs> in London because we had just 
closed a really big deal with the customer there and they really wanted somebody there. Yeah. Well, it was a big decision for a small company to mm. afford putting somebody in place. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, again, I, not to beat on this, but it's just, to me, it's just this mindset. And you talk about this, having this mindset in the book is, yeah, you can apply the mindset to smaller deals. It doesn't necessarily mean everything needs to be a seven figure deal, but yeah, have that mindset. Instead of just saying, yeah, we're going to, you know, peck away at this and eventually we'll increase our deal size, you know, 10% more this year, 10% more the next year and so on. Yeah. If you want to make that big step function, go find big deals. And, and not only does the seller need to learn this new mindset, but they need to be able to either inspire it in others or, or find kind of these kindred spirits on the other side, which is the customer side, right? right. I, I've learned that there's a big difference between responsibility and accountability. <laughs> yes. You know, for, for those who think those words are really, really close, I, I learned that responsibility, you know, can be the person who's actually responsible to push the buttons and they got to make sure that it, you know, they do the work and it's, it's done well. Right. But the accountable is not necessarily, and in most cases, especially in corporate structures, it's not the person who pushes the buttons. Mm -hmm. It's somebody who owns the outcome. Right. And it's those folks who so many sellers are either fearful of approaching because they feel, oh, there's too much distance between me and her. She's an SVP and I'm a lowly salesperson. And how could I engage her directly? Right. There's a lot of... Uh, I, I see a lot of reps that don't want to go all the way to where they need to go right away. Right? They, they kind of climb mm -hmm. up the mountain level by level, take some months or years. But to be able to kind of reach out and to have those kind of conversations about problems or opportunities, it doesn't have to be pain. It can be, you know, um, trying to reach the next level, moving, trying to get to a better place. Um, but to be able to have those conversations directly or at least be a part of the conversation and match people who you have experts or executives mm -hmm. on your side with the right folks on the other side too. That's, that's part of this whole idea of, of, of selling above the clouds, right? In the, the, the run rate world, you're really spending time with folks on the shop floor or first line managers and you just get stuck there just in the quagmire of kind of the run rate mentality, but to leapfrog above and to get to those higher levels, things are completely different. I remember that it, it was a meeting like that one that I was talking about the, the VP. I was amazed at how simply and clearly my executives and this customer executives were talking to each other. Mm -hmm. They use plain English. You know, they don't use big words. Mm -hmm. They get right to it. And they don't hide information. They just say, okay, you know, here's my problem. Here's how we're doing it. Here's how much money it takes us to do it today. Can you do better? You know, well, yeah, we can do better. We, we do this part well. We do this part not so well. But the way that we get over it is this. I was just like, holy cow, they're just talking like they were at a church picnic. And it's, you know, and it was cutting through what would have taken months to deal with the lower level folks because of all the, the games that people play and the the inability to just get right to it. Yeah, well, I think that, and that speaks to sort of a larger issue, which we could spend another hour on, but it's just, 
Yeah, there's a sales salespeople have this this perception of the status mismatch between them and the person they're speaking with. And to the point you just made is is they don't understand this the best way to deal with someone is deal with them as you would appear, even if there is a status mismatch. And talk in plain English and and be clear about uh understanding them and make sure they're clear about understanding you. And one place that a lot of reps can gain gain comfort from is that you can gain that peer status by just knowing your corner of the world. Yeah. Because the person who you're talking to is dealing is generally working at a really high level, you know, and, and they, they're, they're never in deep details. That's not what they do. So you could be an expert in one tiny corner of the world. You don't have to be on their level in every way. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that is, that is sort of the critical thing, right? I mean, you talk in your book about sea level insights. I think you'd call them. Um, yeah, everybody can have an insight as a corporation. You want to develop these insights, but um, yeah, for me, and I know you come at it from a different way. In the book, you talk about yeah, rock star sellers don't lead with questions, but I actually find that yeah, one of the most effective ways to deliver insights is through questions. But you have to be prepared with them. Absolutely, and. Um I think questions are very important. And, you know, sometimes to make a point, you got to go to one of the extremes to make the point. Mm -hmm. What I really mean by rock stars don't lead with questions, meaning they don't always lead with stupid questions to really (laughs) high up people. That's for sure. (laughs) They ask lots of questions. Most of it they've asked, you know, a good bit of it they've asked already in preparation in getting in front of that senior person. And then when they do get in front of that senior person, they ask smart questions. Right. But to your point earlier is, is you talked about, is, you know, if you want to bring an insight that, that tells the the buyer something about their business, senior person, something about their business, they don't hadn't thought of, aren't aware of. Yeah. I believe phrasing that as a question, we're asking them something about their business that they possibly should know, but very possibly don't or probably don't. Hugely powerful way to, to introduce an insight. Yeah. Because you're not absolutely. you're not stating it in such a way that might make them feel bad about the fact they don't know it. It's it's like, oh yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question. I don't know, I think I need to think about that. And then they'll want to know, well, why why would this be important? You know, those types of questions become triggers for conversations at a very substantive level. Yet another example of a thinking person's Selling is a thinking person's activity. It most certainly is. And this is, <laughs> this is thing just drives me nuts is, yeah, you know, I think trend in sales over the last 10, 15 years has been to try to, again, make it more process driven and less, less about the individual and more about the process. And I think that's ultimately self-defeating. It, it's a whole nother topic, but you know, with the rise of sales tech, you know, absolutely. I think there's a place for it. Um, my sense is that the process driven view and the tech driven view all has their place, but it's particularly relevant at the lower levels, either smaller deals. Transactional. Or, yeah. yeah. Transactional selling. I think there's a lot of room for lots of uh, adherence to process, lots yep. of sales tech opportunities. The higher up, the bigger numbers, the more complex problems, it, they tend to, lose efficacy. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it relies on the ability to of the seller to, as I say, be more human. And uh, so, yes, that's what I talk about in my new book, which we'll, we'll talk about some other time. So, all right, Jamal, thank you so much for joining me. Um, if people want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? I think the best way would probably just look me up on LinkedIn. You know, I can, I can give you my profile link if you want that for the show oh, notes. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and uh, from there, in, my, in the featured section, there's lots of stuff that I have or do. Uh, everything from my email list to my book to a free webinar about you know what it takes to be a, a mega dealer. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, Jamal, been a pleasure. Mine as well. I really appreciate the time. Andy. All right. Do it again soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Jamal Reimer, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Certainly appreciate your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.